You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup spoke with Ash Carter, America's 25th Secretary of Defense. Carter engineered a lasting defeat of ISIS and developed connections between the Defense Department and the tech industry. Secretary Carter is now director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. You've been a professor, you've been a researcher, you've been an assistant secretary of defense, undersecretary of defense, deputy secretary of defense, secretary of defense, and now you're the director of the Belfer Center here at the Kennedy School. Why can't you hold down a job? <laughs> I was an investor and businessman in, there, there, you go. Uh, right. in there also. Well, when it comes to government service at the highest levels, the way the United States government works, um, uh, people above a certain level are presidential appointees. That's the system. Uh, and what that means is that they, and this is has its good side and its bad side, it, it, they turn over with administrations. So the f uh, my very first job was not at that high level in the Pentagon, and I worked in the Reagan administration, a Republican administration. Mm. Uh, the first president, I'm not a very political person. I was, I did, had no partisan affiliation at all. I was a physicist. The very first person who, who asked me to take a position for which a presidential appointment was required turned out to be a Democrat, Bill Clinton. I was happy to do that. I'm happy to be associated with the Democratic Party, but that's the way the system works. Um, uh, the good thing about that system is it tends to ventilate the government. And it means that people come in with fresh ideas. Mm -hmm. And I certainly always benefited from my time at Harvard when I did serve in government because I was in touch with the newest and best in thinking about uh, government management, international affairs, and so forth. And I could bring that in. The bad thing about that system is it leads to turnover and some degree of partisanship in the in the federal agencies, not so much in defense. Defense, and this was something I was very important to me as Secretary of Defense, uh, is still pretty much a nonpartisan. Uh, so that's activity. a little insulated uh, from uh, from these sort of partisan cycles. It, it is, but it, you need to work at it. And let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. We just came through a presidential campaign, 2016, mm -hmm. which was uh, very uh, tumultuous. It went on for. Ever. There was at one time a field of 15 candidates, and every single day, each one of them would say something. And the it, in congressional testimony, when I sat there uh, in front of the Congress or in a press conference, um, members of Congress or the press would try to get me to comment on. They'd say, candidate so and so so-and-so said such-and-such such today, what do you think of that? And, and I, I would say to them, Senator, Congressman, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm not going to answer that because you framed it in terms of the presidential campaign and the presidential candidate. And it's important that we in the Department of Defense stand apart mm -hmm. from politics. So I'm not going to answer your question. And moreover, I'm not going to allow the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's sitting next to me at the mm -hmm. hearing table, to answer it either. Right. And after two, uh, two or three times of punching right back mm -hmm. that way, 
it, they stopped because they knew they just blew their question. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to answer it. That was a very important thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I, what I was trying to do was protect the um, I I integrity of what is a, a critical it, it, defense isn't a game. It's not a, it is, this is the, a very serious business. It's about protecting people. And um, we, it, we can't lay it open to the kinds of things that go on in presidential campaigns. And we can't allow the professional military to be politicized. You, you mentioned that you've kind of come back to Harvard uh, and cycled back fr in from government, back to Harvard, back from Harvard, yeah. back to government. And you were the director of the Center for National Science Long and International ago, Affairs, 1990 uh, to 1993, yes. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, before it was named the Belfer Center. Right. And uh, so in the last 25 years, a quarter century since you were director, have you seen a change in the role of a oh, university think tank? Yes, although I, I have to say, if I may say so, and the, the huge Absolutely. credit goes to the founding director of this place, Paul Doty, and also my immediate predecessor, Graham Allison, mm -hmm. Uh, who both is dean and then director of the center, uh, uh, I, this place has always been the leading research center in the fields that it concentrates in. I was director of it uh, once upon a time, and in that era, uh, that is when I brought into the center science, technology, and public policy. I brought in energy and environment, climate, it's hard to believe this now, mm -hmm. um, but in those days, uh, I taught a course. There was one course mm -hmm. called Science, Technology, and Public Policy. I taught it. At the Kennedy School. At the Kennedy School. And That's we did remarkable. one class on climate. Mm -hmm. And the students thought that was very exotic. They thought they you said, were progressive. <laughs> they said, why are you teaching yeah. climate? Well, they, they didn't understand it. Yeah. And I taught them the phenomena, the physical phenomena that, that we now yeah. associate with that. And, and it, but it was new to them. Mm -hmm. And I said, you watch this, someday you're gonna wanna have been exposed to this. Now we have a number of courses, we have great a number yeah. of great faculty members who focus on this. So it is constantly expanded its scope. Yeah. By the way, it's, gonna, it's got to continue to expand its scope yeah. uh, in the coming years. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm determined to do. Well, I'm looking forward to it. You mentioned science and tech. Now, you're a, you're a scientist by training. I am. Uh, and uh, what, what were the technologies you were most proud of uh, when you were Secretary of Defense that you supported? Uh, well, uh, there's some that I can't describe to you that oh, are man. little surprises oh, for on. enemies in the future. Maybe and a good thing. Yeah, that is a very good thing, and it's an it's an important thing to do uh, in the in the future. The what I was most proud of it were was the mechanism by which I connected us to the tech community, so that whether it was artificial intelligence or robots mm. or bio defenses. Mm. Uh, or cyber defenses or any of the other things, mm. these exciting things that are going on. Uh, I knew that unlike when I started out in my life, when most of the technologies critical to defense were built and funded by the Defense Department, the internet, the mm. jet engine, the satellite, mm. that's no longer true. There's a lot of stuff going on outside. Mm -hmm. And so to have the best, which we have to have in order to protect our people, mm -hmm. uh, 
we need to be connected to the outside world. So I am very proud of the outposts that I built to the Pentagon, one here in Boston, one in uh, uh, Silicon Valley, Valley right. one in Austin, and I would have been doing more where yeah. I still I still there, and, I, and, and I'm guessing that the department leadership will continue and to these do outposts that are, in yeah. the future. Mm -hmm. These outposts are to recruit, are they to? They are to create a pre physical presence in the tech hubs where companies can come mm -hmm. and get to know the mm -hmm. problems that we're wrestling with. Mm -hmm. Most technologists find them fascinating mm -hmm. and vitally important. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they know that nothing else matters if you're not safe. And uh, so they get inspired by the kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. And then they get to know us and work with us. Because remember, a lot of these startups, have never, they've never worked with the right. Department of Defense. They don't know anybody in the Department in of Defense. When they're they're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. they're and, not thinking about and, defense the, at the right. time. And so there, this is a, a get-to-know-you kind of thing. Yeah. And it's been enormously powerful. Yeah. I could send our people there mm. and they could learn about the startup culture. Yeah. And the startup culture could learn something about the Pentagon. Yeah. And since we have these kind of two cultures, yeah. uh, Pentagon can be very bureaucratic. Yeah. And startups can, you know, be very loosey goosey, Rest, and that's great, yeah. and uh, and so forth. But it, you can't. You, I wanted to make sure we didn't have these two different styles stopping us from working together. Is there a, is there a major, there has, does there have to be some sort of PR campaign associated with that? Because I can imagine there could be levels of suspicion, you know, looking at the Defense Department coming in and trying to create these relationships. Is there, is there ever a skeptical view? I worried view? about that when yeah. I started, and I thought, well, in view of Snowden yeah. and all that, right. uh, were we going to be welcome? Mm -hmm. And I was very present, pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, the generation of technologists today that we see here, and one of the reasons I wanted to be in Boston uh, at, at uh, Harvard, and I also have an appointment at MIT, was I wanted to be among that, those right. young technologists as they come up, uh, because I sense in them the same thing I felt when I was a young scientist, but I think it was less prevalent in the last generation, which is a desire to do things that are not only make money, mm -hmm. but are, that are of consequence mm -hmm. and goodness for people. Uh, and th these students here know that technology cannot be stopped, and it has so many good things that come with it. Um, but there's also a dark side to every innovation. Mm -hmm. They put people out of jobs, or they allow stalkers, or mm -hmm. predators, or terrorists to operate on them. So mm -hmm. there's a dark side. And, and those of us who work on these things have a responsibility mm -hmm. to uh, bring out the bright side and combat the dark side. And, and those students have that. Yeah. I ran into that spirit. In, and so a lot of them were very willing to work mm -hmm. on defense. They knew it was important, but I had to meet them halfway. Well, speaking of the dark side, is there, is, there, is there a part of the world that you are most concerned about right now in, in current affairs? Well, uh, I wish there were, there were only one. Or, but yeah. the, there are, the, I, I always talked about the big five, uh, which are uh, terrorism, in particular ISIS, mm -hmm. which we, mm -hmm. we have very substantially destroyed as we needed mm -hmm. to in Iraq and Syria, uh, with the taking of Mosul and Raqqa and other 
uh, mm -hmm. places. Um, but terrorism will be around in the human future and is going to remain a, a significant problem for, for defense. Um, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, which just launched another missile yeah. uh, yesterday. So I wish I could do them on one finger, but I, oh, I can just barely do them on one hand. Yeah. And also, I'm very mindful of the fact that that's today's mm. uh, dangers. And uh, they're all different. Not of them are no, yeah. not all of them are enemies today. Mm. We're certainly not at war with all. Mm. These are these are places that where there's enough tension that yeah. you need to try to prevent war. And um, but if you if you're the Secretary of Defense as I was, you're the Secretary of Defense of today and of tomorrow. Yeah. So I also have to be thinking of what is it that's not on that list. Mm -hmm that might come along in the future. And Something that's under underrated or underappreciated. Uh, yes, or that none of us has thought of yet. Yeah. And that is why it's important that I work on the fundamentals, mm -hmm. which is technology, mm -hmm. we've talked about, so we have the best mm -hmm. technology, and why I worked so hard on people, mm -hmm. including allowing women mm -hmm. to be in all combat mm -hmm. specialties. Right. Because I need the best talent and the best technology so that whatever happens in the future, yeah we're ready to protect our people. How do you solve a problem like North Korea? I mean, that, that, this ICBM test that uh, people are saying, it's, it's, it's gone such a distance that it could hit anywhere yeah. in the United States. And of course, the, the next worry is, are they gonna have thermonuclear power and, uh, or thermonuclear bomb, uh, excuse me, um, and to deliver some sort of a, a hydrogen bomb to the United States. Right. What, what do you do? I mean, we've got 200,000 Americans here's, in the Korean here's, Peninsula. Here, we got... here, here's what you do, and this is, it's, it's obviously not a great situation, yeah. not one we welcome, yeah. but we don't get to pick these. Yeah. Uh, in the case of ballistic missiles capable of reaching the United States, for example, yeah. uh, I knew that that was a possibility, not something I wanted to head off, yeah. we wish it didn't happen, but we knew it was a possibility six years ago. Six years ago, I built, and it was quite controversial mm -hmm. at that time, missile defenses in Alaska and California. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, some people opposed that right. and said, what's the problem? I don't see. Right. And I said, well, but we've got to be one step ahead of the North of the North That's Korea. shooting the bullet with the bullet. Exactly. And therefore, as we sit here today, if North Korea got the capability to put a nuclear warhead yeah. on a missile that could reach the United States, we could protect ourselves. So the first part of the answer to your question, what do we do, is we have to defend ourselves. Yeah. And another part of defense yeah. is deterrence. And yeah. that's why we have 28,500 troops on the Korean Peninsula. Right. But I also think that we need to uh, give coercive diplomacy a try. Now, I can't tell, because it's very hard to tell at all what's, yeah. what, what the the uh, uh, administration is doing because mm -hmm. the president yeah. says all kinds of things and then the people below him seem to be doing some other things. Yeah. Some other things. <laughs> but if I listen to the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, they yeah. talk repeatedly about diplomacy and I think they're right to. Yeah. And uh, we need to give that a try. I have my thoughts about how uh, we should try to conduct that, but you've yeah. got to do defense and deterrence on the one hand yeah. and diplomacy on the other. And, and, and these cabinet members who seem to be saying different things, I mean, there's no question that that I'm sure in history many cabinet members have disagreed with their president. Uh, I'm sure that happens quite often, but rarely so overtly. Uh, rarely is there actually, um, you know, you know, 
I, I guess in this case, it's not just the left hand not talking to the right hand because there's many hands here, many cabinet members that are all kind of seemingly saying different things. What's your read on that? Is that is that do you think do you think that is something strategic? Do you think it is reckless? Do you think it's a problem of communication? Uh, well, it 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 is uh, it, it is in if it makes us ineffective because it baffles the world. Yeah, uh, that's. The, the thing that's awkward. I do not know how they operate internally. I'm mm -hmm. not part of the current team. Um, if I had a disagreement with President Obama, I talked to him about that privately. Yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't go out to the press or something. And and, so and likewise, thing that you if he he didn't slap me down in public right. or send a tweet out or something saying, "Don't listen to Carter." <laughs> Um, we worked things out, uh, and most times we could, but sometimes he would do something that I didn't completely agree mm -hmm. with, but he's president and I'm secretary of defense. That's, that's the way it goes. As long as I was heard, and he was a very respectful listener, I was okay with that. Mm -hmm. What's important, now remember, you're dealing with the rest of the world, and if you want to avoid war, people need you need to hear what it is that you are up to and what you will tolerate and what you won't tolerate. And that requires clear communication. So my uh, the concern I have with a disjuncture between what the president says and a cabinet member uh, says or the appearance of a disjuncture between the two is it means that American power is not being projected yeah. and that's dangerous yeah uh, I, I understand you're a fan of medieval history I am um, there's so much there uh, a thousand years. <laughs> it's a lot it's of thousand medieval <laughs> historians got a great a lot of happened a great yeah no we have a, a great long period so you have a you know, there's a program here at the Belfer Center called the applied history program mm -hmm. Very um, important. and I was curious to know um, you know what you think we can learn from the from the medieval period uh, well, it's, it, it, I, it, history is one of the frontiers that I am determined to push forward for this center. And there's some others as well. But uh, history is one. And here's the basic reason, and then I'll get to the medieval okay. part. Basic reason is that we have scientists, not many, but we have a few here. But mostly we have political scientists and psychologists and economists. And if you think about it, real leaders mostly don't know anything about political science theories and economic theories. Those are useful, and they feed into the policy process. But most real-world decision makers uh, use history to think their way through a situation. They run into some, a circumstance, and they say, what is this like? that I've experienced or read about or seen before. And that helps them guide through. So it's, so we need to understand that the dominant intellectual methodology behind real decision making in the real world is history. Therefore, I think we need to have more historians mm -hmm. who are thinking about international problems, saying what really happened yeah. rather than the mythologies we tell ourselves, and how to think in historical terms. Medieval history is it was an it was an interesting period because it even though it was a long time ago it explains a great deal about why things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. It's where the university came from, mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, Islam, mm -hmm. uh, the um, I think you've convinced the, me the legal system, <laughs> yeah. the English common law, yep. 
And these are things we live with every, every day, and it helps you understand how things work and why they are the way they are yeah. if you understand where they came from. Mm-hmm. Secretary Carter, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.